Buddhist Geeks Discover the Emerging Face of Buddhism. Episode 305 Get It On Like a Buddha. We're joined again by author and teacher Lodro Rinsler to discuss themes from his latest book, Walk Like a Buddha. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, everybody. Uh, Vince Horn here for another episode of Buddhist Geeks, and I'm here today with our special guest, Lodro Rinsler. Lodro is a good friend, author, uh, Buddhist geek of all sorts of shades and varieties, and uh, is here today uh, joining us from his apartment, I'm, I'm imagining, in, uh, in Brooklyn. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's always fun to hang out with you. It's good to see you. Cool. So, you know, I think most people that tune into the show have probably um, heard of your work and have probably uh, s- seen some of your writings. Um, you were at the conference last year, gave a great talk on Spider-Man and, uh, and spiritual authority and teachers. And um, so, so I won't spend a lot of time introducing you, except to say um, a couple new things that you've been working on are one, um, a book, which we're going to talk a little bit about, um, called Walk Like a Buddha. And I love the subtitle. It's uh, even if your boss sucks, your ex is torturing you, and you're hungover again. Um, which I could relate, unfortunately, to all three of those um, <laughs> aspects of the subtitle. Um, and then also you started, I think since we last spoke, you started a new project called the Institute uh, for Compassionate Leadership. Um, so it'd be cool to talk about both of those things. And it sounds like you've been busy. Yeah, that's, that's, definitely, that's definitely the word for it. I've been busy. But it's all good things. You know, I mean, I feel... I feel really wonderful about both uh, the first book, The Buddha Walks Into a Bar, and now the new one. Walk Like a Buddha came out October 15th. So it is now officially two months old, and it seems to be kicking butt, which is good. Um, how, how do you how do you measure that? How do you measure kicking butt? I mean, obviously, there's like traditional things like how many books you sold, but how do you know as an author that, that it's kicking butt? So, okay, there's there's that conventional aspect, right? So the other day I got a phone call from my publisher and they basically said it's kicking butt. And I said, great, you know, it sounds like, so basically that means that it's selling well and that people are picking it up and all of that. Um, but for me personally, it's, it's just the feedback that people get, uh, you know, so these days with Facebook and Twitter and email and, you know, all sorts of these, these different mediums, people are actually posting that they read the book, that they liked the book, that they got something out of it. So that's the meaningful thing for me. And I mean, it's interesting, you, you know, in your introduction, you said at this point, people uh, know your work or some, you know, they have some relationship to any of the speaking or talking, you know, the books, any of that. When you and I did this last time, 99% of the people that were listening to the podcast probably had no clue who I was. And it's been a really weird year, two years now, actually, since the first book came out. Uh, of sort of like looking at getting my work out there more and seeing how it's been received both positively and negatively and um, simultaneously like not drinking my own Kool-Aid but being really touched by the fact that people do write me and say, you know, this book was helpful to me and here's how. Um, And those sorts of people that, you know, take the time to actually not only just read the book but then reach out after and stay that they found it helpful in some way. It's been so 
incredibly meaningful for me. It's been transformative, actually, for me personally, to know that I, even though I may not necessarily meet someone, um, that I've been in conversation with them. Mm. And with the Institute, you know, I, I, I saw that you started this for a really interesting and kind of uh, touching reason. And I was curious if you could share a little bit about how that came to be and um, what, what sort of drove you to, uh, to, to work on this project. Yes. So the Institute for Compassionate Leadership, I mean, one of the things that going full circle, I mean, I was reflecting once again on uh, when you and I last did a podcast, it was right when the first book came out and there is, you know, I went on this giant tour for it and there is a lot of allure to actually sort of get a puffed head of like, oh, the book's doing well, blah, blah, blah. And I think I bought into that for a little bit. I really do. And, uh, and then there was this period of time where my life just crashed down around me where um, you know, my fiance broke off our engagement and moved to London. Um, I lost my full-time job, you know, and then most significantly, uh, my, one of my best friends died. And, and then even after that, like all of my worldly belongings were washed away in Hurricane Sandy and then my father died. And so it was sort of like a real, like one, two punch from samsara, the cycle of suffering we seem to be in and sort of humbled me in a different way. Uh, which is not to say I don't continue to have my own various forms of arrogance and selfishness and things like that. But um, at least, you know, I stopped buying into that, like, ego thing around the books. Um, so to answer your question more directly, yeah, my, my one of my best friends from college passed away. He was 29 at the time. He was someone that had worked on the Obama campaign, starting when Obama was running for the Senate race in 2004. And he uh, was a wonderful, compassionate, loving human being. And when he passed away, I was encouraged by many of his friends in that world to go out and work in Ohio and continue to uh, do similar sorts of work that he was passionate about to help get the president reelected. And... Um, Flash forward to January 23rd, 2013, so all of 11 months ago. Uh, I'm at the staff ball, which is about some 7,000 people who had worked on the campaign, all in their formal wear, many of them young, younger than me, um, inspired. They had their first taste of creating social change and some sort of sense of meaningful change in the world. And... um, most of them were not sure what they were going to do next. And it was this beautiful speech that you can find on YouTube where the president got up and thanked them for the work and said, I, I can't wait to see what you go on to do. And then at the same time, folded up his notes, put them in his pocket and talked extemporaneously about my friend Alex that had passed away and how he had actually created real change in his short life because he was driven, focused, kind, loving, and... Um, not surprisingly, like I, you know, sobbed for 10 minutes straight. But when I picked myself up from that, this idea for the Institute for Compassionate Leadership felt fully formed in my head. Um, whereas, you know, how can we create more people like that? And in the like 30 second version of the Institute is it's a leadership training and job placement organization for young people who want to create social change and they're not exactly sure what they want to do. So we get them executive coaches who get them focused on oh, I guess I'm interested in gun control, or I'm interested in education reform, or I'm interested in poverty reduction. But once they figure that out, we get them a mentor in that field. And the training aspect revolves around meditation as tools for actually becoming more self-aware and compassionate, 
community organizing in the Obama campaign style of actually trying to empower people through human to human interaction in an authentic way. And then traditional leadership skills like negotiation, fundraising, things like that, that are not often taught at universities these days. And then at the end of this whole thing, once they've really figured out what they want to do, we help network on their behalf to get them meaningful work. Nice, nice. And it's interesting, you know, there's, and I, this goes back, I guess, in the, even in the Buddhist history, there's um, kind of, you know, the, the quote-unquote Hinayana motivations for practice, um, you know, kind of self, self-awakening, uh, freedom from kind of your own self-delusion and suffering. Um, and then there's this kind of gradual historical move out, you know, of, of taking that sort of understanding and not sort of limiting it to oneself. Um, I, I like what you're saying because it seems like a natural extension of that kind of movement um, where it sounds like what you're describing is an intentional effort to create widespread change. What, you know, whether or not someone agrees with your methods or whatever, or your philosophy or and any of that, still there's something that you're doing there where you're, it sounds like you're trying to have a, a sort of large impact. And, and that's, that's quite interesting. Yeah. And it's, you know, I'm, I'm, I actually was thinking, so Jerry Colonna was someone that spoke at the Buddhist Geeks conference this last year. And I was thinking about his speech the other day and this beautiful notion I introduced that sometimes a good leader is someone who's willing to say, I don't know how this is going to work out. And I'm fully willing to say um, that I am not sure how this will work out. I, I do believe in the transformative aspects of these various things that we've put under one umbrella. And I do believe in every single one of the applicants that we've accepted to date. They are already doing incredible work in the world. Some of them are work in India right now working with refugees. Some of them, you know, work in uh, after school programs. Some of them uh, work in, um, you know, in the shelter system. And they're all doing, I mean, it's, it's been phenomenal to see this diverse group of young people and young in this particular instance is, you know, 20 to 35. Um, it's, they're just inspiring. So I believe in them. And I believe that we can offer something to them to continue their trajectory. Then, I mean, that's great. So we'll see. We'll see. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's it's cool. It you know, it, it kind of connects. Uh, and this is sort of a question I, I had for you is, you know, it, it seems like, and this is based just on on kind of observation, not 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 on a ton of research or anything, but it seems like um, this group of people you're describing, you know, twenty to thirty five the kind of spirituality that most of the people I run into in, in that age range is a kind of highly engaged spirituality, if they're even interested in spirituality at all. Um, but like the way they conceive of the meaning of their lives is in terms of the kind of work they're doing in the world and the kind of change that they're helping make in the world. And I know that's not everyone in this age range, but at least, you know, at least the people I run across that are motivated and some level of educated, you know, they, they really care deeply about the world and they don't seem to be interested at all in a spirituality, which is divorced from the world. Um, so I was curious what, what your experience with that has been and, and what, what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I'm completely with you on that. I, I've had that same hit. Um, so for the first book, I traveled to about 36 cities. And then for Walk Like a Buddha, I traveled to 17. So, you know, mid-October to mid-November, I was just on the road nonstop. And um, everywhere I went, and we're talking, I mean, primarily across the U.S. and Canada. But, you know, I would go to Salt Lake City, and I, it was my first time there. And I thought, God, I wonder what the people will be like. And they were just as 
motivated as wanting to be of benefit to the world as everyone else I had ever encountered. And it's like, no matter whatever, like minor prejudices I might have in going into a given city, whoever would come out and want to engage me in this sort of discussion were these amazing people who were really trying to be quite thoughtful about how they were going to live their lives, how they were actually going to find meaning in their work, how they were going to build a family in a way that actually felt good and sustainable and helpful for the world. It was like, it's like really amazing stuff. Um, so I think you're right. There's this growing trend of, of, and I don't want to limit that to young people. I think there's sort of like a, a conscious shift in culture right now. We're sort of seeing this rampant consumerism and maybe it's coming out of the recession and um, people seeing real suffering in the job market that they're saying, you know what, I want more than just a you know, safe and secure job and, and a white picket fence. I want to actually be in the world and actually helpful to the world. Um, so I think if that continues to go in that direction, more and more people will probably pursue meditation, not just as a way for them to become less stressed out or deal with their emotions more, more in a more uh, hands-on way, but to actually enter into that practice with the intention of trying to be helpful to society as a whole. Mm. Great. So maybe um, not switching gears, I think, but, but shifting to another facet of this. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about your book and uh, Walking Like a Buddha. The first thing, as I was uh, you know, going through the book, the, the chapter I, I enjoyed the most was uh, Get It On Like a Buddha. Uh, so, and and you know, the reason I enjoyed it is not just because of what you said, but also because this simply isn't a, a topic of conversation that gets much airtime in most of the meditation centers that I've been involved in. And I, I suspect in most meditation centers in general. Um, so I wanted to kind of kind of get your thoughts on this. Uh, this. This whole chapter of the book, you're exploring various issues related to things like being single, uh, being gay, masturbation, open relationships, and even match.com. Uh, I appreciate that there's a little section on dropping expectations around match.com. So I was wondering if you could share a little bit about kind of how, what approach you're taking to this whole issue and, and, and all the various kind of facets of it related to, you know, sexuality, um, being a human that's in relationship or not in relationship. Um, how are you approaching this and, and, and uh, kind of how is it different, I guess, than, than how we typically approach uh, from, from the kind of Buddhist framework? these issues. Yeah, that's interesting. So gosh, a whole wide variety of thoughts on this one. You know, I opened this particular section. Let me just give a little bit of background for, for people who have no sense of um, what Walk Like a Buddha is, which is probably most everyone. Um, Walk Like a Buddha is 50 questions that people emailed to me or, you know, sent me on Facebook or asked me at an event that I compiled and just sat down and wrote. And it was actually written in the period of six weeks. I just sat down December 2012 into January 2013 and just sort of cranked it out um, because I was really inspired. And coming off of the first book tour, I started hearing the same sort of questions over and over again, you know, to, like clockwork to this day. I would get an email once a week from someone saying, I'm going through a breakup and it's really hard to keep my heart open. What's, do you have any, you know, Buddhist teachings that might relate to this? And so some of these I get all the time, some of them I get once, but I'm inspired by, and I sat down and wrote them all up. So there's 10 questions on how to get a meditation practice going, 10 questions on um, work, 10 questions on going out, which is sort of this giant umbrella term of everything from how do we look at Facebook to how do we look at the Buddhist view around tattoos, um, 
10 questions on social action. So somewhat akin to what we were just talking about, how do we actually create change in the world? And 10 questions on romantic entanglements, which is such a tricky area. And I mean, I found that the sort of questions in there, I mean, I could have done a hundred questions in that section, really. It, it's, those are the questions I get the most. Really? And, oh, absolutely. I mean, mm. as soon as you present that you could have a dialogue with people around sex, dating, relationships, that's all they want to talk about. And it got to the point where, you know, when I was touring around for the Buddha walks into a bar, I would ask people, what do you want to talk about? And someone's hand would inevitably go up and be like, sex. And it was like, you know, as soon as you gave people permission, that's all they wanted to talk about. Um, and I opened this section in Walk Like a Buddha with this story that when I was in Seattle, uh, I got there and there's a little winded, you know, sort of traveling nonstop. And I, I, say, I said exactly that, what you guys want to talk about. And this woman raises her hand. She's probably in her mid fifties. And she says, you know, I'm, I'm recently single. or no, I'm recently divorced and I'm starting to date again. And I thought, okay, I might know approximately where this is going. And then she says, and you know, when I'm having sex with a guy and he comes and I don't, sometimes like, it's great for me. Like I still enjoy it, but then he asked me and I had to tell him that I didn't. And then it becomes weird. And then I have to like sue this ego. And, um, and then like, I have to make him feel like more of a man. Then it's no longer fun for me. Anyway, what does Buddhism have to say about that? <laughs> what does Buddhism have to say about that? I'm curious. I mean, I, I joke that this is like the one time that my friends have ever seen me speechless and they'd like to hold it over me. Um, I think I basically deferred to the audience on this one. Uh, and we had a really good discussion because with all these things, and I should be very clear, you know, with yes, people submitted like, you know, 50 questions and I answered them for this book, but at no point am I saying I'm the expert here, you know, like I, have my own experience. I have my own understanding of the Buddhist teachings. Some people may agree. Some people may disagree. Um, but I'll share my experience and my my understanding as much as I can, in as genuine a way as I can. And ideally, that sparks other people to have dialogue as well. That's the most important part. That people are actually talking about these things. So to get what you were originally saying, yeah, I mean, you know, I might open up and say, okay, you know, here's some thoughts around being direct with your communication or trying to. Um, look at your own intentions and things like that. But from there, you know, it's everyone else bringing their own wisdom to bear and their own experience. And that's, that's really cool. Mm, great. And, you know, that was one thing I was kind of curious about as I read um, some of the responses to your questions. And I know um, some of these also came out of your um, column that you did for a while in Huffington Post. Maybe you still do it. Um, what, what would Sid do? Uh, kind of a play on the, the WWJD theme that, that happened uh, I, get, I don't really see it as much anymore, but it was kind of like a meme for quite a while. Yeah, um, yeah. No, so what would Sid do, you know, Sid being short for Siddhartha, which is not, of course, any disrespect for, for the man who went on to become the Buddha, but just it was the idea that I believe that they had nicknames 2,600 years ago, and maybe this was Sid. Uh, <laughs> but it was that notion that, you know, what if we had, we, what if we were following in his footsteps? What if we were walk, walking like a Buddha, i.e. trying to explore what spirituality and meditation and these Buddhist teachings actually mean in today's world? And what would that look like? So similar stuff, you know, questions on dating, questions on work, questions on how to create social change. And uh, those, I, I mean, I think I'll probably revive that column pretty soon because so much of that work went into the book. I ended up sort of taking a bit of a hiatus and just focusing on the book, but I should start... Uh, 
blogging because I do I really do love the dialogue aspect that people write in and I get to respond. Yeah, and you know, some someone was uh, sharing. I think it was Ken McLeod recently that um, you know, if you kind of look through some of the early Buddhist texts, uh, the primary mode in which the Buddha was teaching, which Sid was teaching, was through question and answer, through dialogue. It's like ninety percent, um, if not more, of of the content is in that format. So that's kind of fascinating. It is. It is absolutely fascinating. So, I mean, it's been uh, currently. You know, I'm I'm actually. Taking something of a, of a hiatus, I was telling you before we went on air that, you know, just sort of coming off the book tour and then this is actually the first time I've had a real gap where I haven't had another book expected. So the next book actually comes out in September of 2014 and it's The Buddha Walks Into the Office. So very specifically focusing on some of the stuff we were just talking about with the Institute in terms of work and uh, finding meaningful careers and things like that. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm sort of in this interesting break where I... Uh, I'm not traveling as much as I normally am, which is lovely, and I'm not writing, so I actually get to study a lot more than I normally do, and it's been really wonderful to do that. Nice, nice. And and kind of going back, uh, sort of last question. This is my this is my challenging question for you. Mm. Um, you know, as I was reading the book and as I was reading sort of your your early earlier columns, uh, what would Sid do? I, I often had the sense uh, of being a little bit frustrated because. One, I sort of thought, well, you know, one, do these Buddhists from the past really have much to say on these topics? Um, and then two, even if they do, should we assume that it's relevant to us? Um, because so much of it is questionable. So I wondered, you know, maybe it would be a little more honest to just say, you know, what would Lodro do? As opposed to what would Buddha do, or what would Sid do, and, and but the, you know, then again, I want I want to sort of point out there is a long history, especially in the tradition you've practiced in, of people taking their understanding and kind of transposing it onto the Buddha. So I, I'm curious, kind of what you're doing there, and and how you're thinking about that. Um, yeah. Is it is it more helpful to just own your own kind of understandings, or is is it useful to kind of try to make sense of them in terms of a Buddhist uh, kind of context? Yeah. So I'm reminded of this of this story, I think it was in the early to mid-90s, when the Dalai Lama was visiting San Francisco and he met with this LGBTQ group. And he really, this, I think that I talk about this in the section on, um, you know, someone wrote me saying it's okay to be gay and Buddhist. And of course the answer is yes, please, please do be. Um, please, we want more uh, people who are loving and open in all sorts of ways. But the Dalai Lama, he said, well, you know, there's this text by Tsongkhapa, and Tsongkhapa was this really great master. And in that text by Tsongkhapa, he goes into, you know, all of these various prohibitions, like you shouldn't have anal sex, you shouldn't have oral sex, you shouldn't have sex during the during the day. So it, was, it wasn't even necessarily just homophobic or, or condemning um, gay lifestyle. It was really condemning most everyone. And... There was a lot of controversy at that time, and the Dalai Lama turned around and said, well, really, what, what I mean here is, if we're going to look at these ancient texts, the only way that we'll sort of break from that those traditions is by a communal dialogue. Because people were basically saying, hey, aren't you sort of like the Pope or Buddhism? Can't you just like throw that out the window and adopt something a little bit more modern for our society today? And he said, no, that's not my role. My role is to continue to have a dialogue with people. And the way these things will shift is in a global conversation. And I thought that was actually quite brilliant. So, I mean, with 
all due respect to anyone who who enjoys my books or anything like that like i i struggle even with the with the idea that people might look to me as a teacher in some form even though i obviously do like you know i did life retreats with the buddhist geeks and i, I do teach in the shambhala centers and things like that um like i don't think of myself as some sort of expert and I think of myself who someone who practices a lot and thinks a lot about this stuff and loves to talk to people about it. And uh, so what would Lodra do? I mean, I don't think that's, I, I think that's saying that I have an answer that is the answer. And that's not true. I don't believe that. Um, I believe I have, I think about this and I like to talk about it and I put it out into the world and people either agree or they don't and that's okay because it's more important that they think through for themselves. So. I mean, maybe instead of what would Sidhu or what would Lodro do, it's like, what would you do? <laughs> you know, what what are you going to do? That's the important thing. Like, what is what is personal to you when it comes to dealing with prescription drugs, when it goes to drinking on a Friday night? It doesn't matter what my experience is. I can share it if it's helpful. But it's more important that you have your own understanding and looking at your own intentions around why, you, why you're doing what you're doing. Because I'm no saint, you know? I, that's not me. Um, but having a global conversation around things like, you know, some Kappa's text or, or Gampopa or whatever it might be. And how do we interpret that in today's world? That's interesting. That's interesting to me at least. It is interesting. And it, it, I mean, it kind of brings up the possibility that in that conversation, we're going to find a lot of stuff, you know, from the ancient texts, which um, we simply don't find useful uh, or relevant. And then I think that brings up this constant ever present tension of, you know, the conservers and the adapters, you know, the innovators and the and the people that want to make sure that we don't lose something really important by by kind of having a global conversation and all deciding we don't understand it. And then we throw out something really vital importance. Um, and, and that's really interesting because a conversation allows for that tension to exist as opposed to saying, like, we have to kind of resolve it. Yeah, that's exactly it. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.